straight out of Philly, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Oh, so reluctant. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from Palm Beach Atlantic University. So crawling forth from the icy pits of Helsinki, I have Ali Pekka Vigno on to discuss humanity's fall from grace and the morality of original sin. We get into all sorts of related topics such as providence, human free will, and theodicy. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate money to my Patreon account or my Ko-fi account. Any donation amount helps me out in so many different ways. I really appreciate all of the support that people have already offered there. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear in the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Well, ready or not, here's Ollie and I chatting about our sins. Enjoy. All right, Ollie, thank you so much for being on the show again today. So I want to discuss your contribution to the new TNT Clark Handbook of Analytic Theology. So you wrote a chapter on the fall and original sin. So let's start just by defining some terms. So just what is the Christian doctrine of the fall? So if we want to be uh, as accurate as possible, there is no doctrine of the fall. So there's never a ecumenical council or anything close to that who mm-hmm. said that, okay, this is our doctrine of the fall. So... It's just something that churches typically teach about something of our past. In in the most weakest terms, the, the doctrine of the fall just tells that our world is not as God intended it to be. So it gives some kind of explanation why uh, the world as we perceive it around us is sinful. Okay, that makes sense. So yeah, that, I think that is important to point out that there's no ecumenical council that said, hey, this is this is how it goes. But there's, if it's a widespread belief, and it gives some kind of story of how the world is. The yeah, I mean, is. the word story is pretty good, because that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Typically, people leave it at that. That's not good. Something like, like this This happened in the past, and, and this is supposed to give you some kind of explanation of why the world is not perfect. Mm-hmm. So so that's actually the why, why churches need such a story. So, yeah, so that's so, what I want to get into next, though, is because there's some people who want to go, let's just get rid of this, but why would someone maybe say the doctrine of the fall, like it's just indispensable to Christian thought, like we can't get rid of it? Yeah, it, it's mostly because of theodicy. It tells a story why God is not the origin of evil. Mm-hmm. So it it's one way to get God out of the hook. As the story tells us, so it's by human freedom and human choice that we got the world as it is now. So it, it wasn't God's idea, but it was our idea. Mm-hmm. So it, it's mo- it, it's mostly concerned with theodicy. That makes sense. Yeah, so if I want to say God's not the author of sin and evil in the world, I can just point to the fall as part yeah, of the story. Yeah, so that, okay, so it, 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 it's something that we did yeah. to ourselves. Right. Yeah, so it's not something God did, yeah. it's something humans did. Yeah. But that, that, but that's very minimal. Uh, and if you look at the traditional Christian theology, as I said, this is where it ends. Mm-hmm. So, and, and of, of course, there are theologians who go further than that and ask, so okay, so what actually happened? Sure. So, what's behind this story? Mm-hmm. So instead of just saying, "Oh yeah, there's some kind of fall," be like, "Was there really an Adam and Eve? Was there really yeah. right?" Okay. So before we get into that, then like, let's talk a bit about the doctrine of original sin. So let's define that. Like, what is this doctrine? 
Yeah, so if the doctrine of fall concerns mostly past events and, and theodicy, the doctrine of original sin is mostly about our current status. The, the original sin explains more about how we as humans at this point of history that we are in now, well, why do we keep doing these bad things over and over again? And the answer is, that, well, it's because of this original sin. So we have this natural uh, tendency to do bad things. Mm-hmm. And and then then you can get uh, different versions of, of original sin as you can get to the different versions of, of the fall as well. Right. Okay. So what I guess what, what function does this doctrine of original sin have within like the broader Christian theology? Yeah, th- that's a good question. Because if we take, for example, St. Augustine, whom people quite often but false to say that he invented the doctrine of original sin, mm-hmm. which he didn't. So there are several church fathers and theologians before him who have very similar ideas. You can, of course, try to make distinctions between what these theologians did intend and whether their ideas are same or, or not, but that that's a different story. But Augustine, obviously, he develops a peculiar kind of version of, of the doctrine of original sin. And you could say that it's perhaps one of the strongest versions of the doctrine that ever has been developed. But even for Augustine, the doctrine as such doesn't do much. It's what what I would call an auxiliary doctrine. Mm -hmm. So uh, what Augustine is interested in is the doctrine of grace. Right. So so he he wants kind of an ultimate uh, equality or equity Um, among people. And the way he gets it, it's through the doctrine of original sin. Right. So everyone is equal. Everyone is, how would you say, equidistant from, from God. Yeah, yeah. And, and even even you, you, you would appear to be holier than someone else, you are still as bad as uh, everyone else because of this doctrine. But this serves the doctrine of grace so mm-hmm. that... Uh, because no one can save themselves. That's why God needs to do everything to save these people who cannot do anything by themselves. So, so it, it it's only does sort of kind of groundwork for this kind of monergistic understanding of grace, mm-hmm. and that's all all there is. Okay, so I, I can see that. So because yeah, because if you, so it's so even though it's not something that he seems to take as like like the like the most central doctrine. It does play a pretty important part in doctrines that he does say are very essential, like salvation and grace and yeah. These and sorts I of things. and I talked about this with the people who actually do or who are Saint Augustine scholars, mm-hmm. and then they they seem to confirm my my intuitions that yeah, I mean it doesn't play a big role in Saint Augustine's writings as such as so, so that this is the most central thing I want to say yeah. to, to you. So it's, it just appears here and there, and it always serves this, uh, this other end, uh, which is uh, sort of making God's grace only force mm-hmm. that can save people. So, okay, so it's adding a kind of rationality to the story of grace, of like, why does God need to give all this grace? Why yeah. can't we save ourselves? Yeah. Well, you know, I've got this original sin story to tell you. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so and and, yeah. and it and it's a kind of what I would call theological nuclear option. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that it is a bit extreme, mm-hmm. and and you could easily 
spots and problems that you might have with uh, with a, such a strong doctrine, but that's a different story. Yeah. Okay. So so we've got this big idea of like the fall and the original sin. Uh, now now if I thought that the universe were only like several thousand years old, like I would I would have no problem believing in a literal Adam and Eve who fell from grace. But we know that the universe is actually like much older than that and that humanity itself is much older than that. So one of the things you point out in your chapter is that there's like different under different ways to understand the fall. And so I want to get into that issue. So one of the views you identify is called the historical fall of a single couple. So tell me about this view and then just some of the problems that this view would face. Yes, okay. This or at least one version of this view would be the very traditional understanding of what I would say that probably probably most Christians and theologians in in the past thought that there was a point in history, maybe six, seven thousand years ago, there were actually two persons, Adam and Eve, and and they did something bad. Mm-hmm. And and this is what the fall is. Now with the evolutionary understanding of our past, it's quite hard to pin down who these persons were. Right. So as far as I understand the genetics and biology, you you could trace back all our genes to two individuals. But the problem, at least what I've been told to, is that these people didn't live uh, in the same era. Right. So, so there's a big time difference between this uh, primal Adam and primal Eve. So, so th- they couldn't have gone on dates or anything li- like that. Oh, so the, okay. So the Adam and the Eve, both of them, they each live individually like, in different time periods. Yes. Okay. So, so, so that, yeah. the, so that the, all, all our uh, genes can be traced back to these two, two individuals. But, but this seems to be an ongoing uh, discussion sure. on, 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 in genetics. Okay, so so if if you want to do something like this, I mean, there are several new books by William L. A. Craig and this guy Swamidas. Mm-hmm. Can't remember his first name. Uh, who have written on on this issue? But if you don't want to treat this first historical couple as a kind of biological ancestors of ours, you could say, okay, they they are our spiritual ancestors. So then you could go, let's say six to 10,000 years in our past and said, okay, there are these two people. Uh, there are also other people around. These two people are not our biological ancestors, but they are our spiritual ancestors. Okay. So so they are just people, so, I mean, because in, in the Bible, God it seems to do a lot of this just r- almost randomly choosing stuff mm-hmm. so that he just calls this person and, and, and well why not the other guy but well that's just what god does right so he just picks and chooses these two individuals adam and eve and says okay i will address you i will re- reveal something uh, of my plans to you and just don't go and eat from the tree mm-hmm. and of course we, we know what happens right so so this would be one way i mean if you look at how theologians who hold on to this, who want to hold on to this idea of uh, an actual uh, couple of two individuals, they are quite likely to adopt the view of them as our spiritual, not and not as our biological ancestors. Okay, 
So one option would be try to have him be very historical, but then you're going to have the genetics, the history of genetics problem. And yeah, then and, and, and then, then it goes like, uh, I don't know, 100,000 years. Sure. And and then, then you start to get prob- problems with uh, genealogies in, in right. the Bible. And, and so then the other so option it, is to go, well, that's okay. That's that's a serious problem. So we'll just say these are spiritual ancestors, not necessarily yeah. like literal, like yeah. genealogical. Yeah. And, okay. and, and there's this... Uh, all all these tricky questions of where where Cain found his wife. Yeah. Well, it seems to be that there are other people around. Because yeah, in the story yeah. when he kills Abel, like he's yeah. worried immediately mm-hmm. that other people are going to be upset and, and want to kill him too. Yeah. Yeah. So all the where did all those people come yeah, from? Yeah. So so there's a kind of biblical warrant for uh yeah for for this view. Okay. So. So the next, so the next view you consider in your in your essay affirms a historical fall, uh, like of a group of people. So perhaps like maybe like some hominids at like some single moment of time, or maybe like over a period of time. So tell me a bit about this view, like, and then maybe some of the problems that it's going to face. Yeah, well, I mean, there are several contemporary Protestant theologians, for example, Robert Jensen, and also C.S. Lewis seems to be in favor of, of something like this. Mm-hmm. So instead of, of two individuals, you would have a, a group of people so so that the uh, Adam and Eve story tells something true about our primal condition. And and, and this is, of course, you can, you can see if you want to do this kind of evasive move, so this is one step further. So, so if you don't want to hold on to this idea of the two particular individuals so you well maybe it's just a kind of depiction of uh, how the first humans behaved mm-hmm. the problem with this view or possible problem problem would be uh, the so-called adam christ analogies in in romans in in, in the new testament mm-hmm. um, because at least on a superficial reading it seems to uh, presuppose that uh, adam and Christ are some kind of counterparts. So, mm-hmm. like, Christ is a single person. Also, Adam needs to be a single person. But it's unclear whether the text actually requires that kind of reading. And also, at least Orthodox Christian tradition thinks that the Christ is not an ordinary person. So, somehow, Christ Christ's personhood affects every person. Mm-hmm. So that he is a, some kind of super person, and, and everything that happens to Christ can happen to all the individual persons. So that Christ draws all these fallen persons with him uh, to to heaven and to salvation. So that uh, Christ's personhood behaves in a strange manner. So mm-hmm. why, if this, if this is so, and this is let's say even more important, why, why shouldn't we think that also maybe Adam's personhood is somehow uh, a bit strange in that sense that also Adam is, is a, some kind of a super person in in this sense, right? So so this would be a way of getting getting out of those those problems. Right. Okay. So yeah, if I take that passage as like we all died in Adam, and then we're all like raised or saved through Christ, yeah. you'd be like, well, let's look at what Christ is. Christ is a very unusual kind of person. That's kind of the whole point of Christianity is like he's very unique. So we should look at the verse more closely and see like what's exactly going on here. That is, I mean, that's kind of the idea. Yeah. Okay. So so another view is to say that the fall is not actually an historical event. Like maybe the fall is some kind of like a historical event, 
So just tell me a bit about this view and then again, maybe some problems that it's going to encounter. Yeah, I mean, if you, um, you could say that this is mostly uh, presented by, say, liberal theologians or those who are uh, drawing from, from a liberal tradition. But not, not necessarily all of them. Let, I mean, Søren Kierkegaard would be one, but uh, I, I wouldn't consider him a theological liberal. Karl Rahner from a Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. also a kind of, a, uh, well, not very clearly characterizable person. He really is difficult to pin yeah. down. So then you would say that, okay, maybe we don't need... I mean, what they effectively do is that they do away with the doctrine of the fall, so, okay, there was no historical fall, or as Kierkegaard would say, that uh, it's a wrong question to ask what happened in the fall, because we see the effects of the fall in ourselves, mm-hmm. and this is just the way, it's just a distraction for us, so, and this, this is Kierkegaard, so... Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to face our own responsibility of our own sins. And, and while we do this, we do exactly what Adam and Eve did. So if we want to ask, so what happened, let's say, 10,000 years in the past? It's a Kierkegaard system. It's a wrong question. Yeah. So, so you're, you're, just, you're just doing exactly what the story tells that you shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, I can see this, yeah. And, and we just need to bracket the whole question. So it doesn't give us anything valuable. Mm. I can appreciate Kierkegaard's point. Yeah. Um, but if, if you would go a step further from, from Kierkegaard saying that, okay, not only that we do not know, but, uh, but say that there was no point when uh, humans fell, then we need to go back to the, the function of the doctrine of fall. Mm. So that the, uh, if we do away the distinction between creation and the fall, then the theodicy collapses. Right. So that then God becomes the origin of evil mm-hmm. or, or maybe becomes. So um, there's also the debate about sure. that. And, and and here you can see also these differences between so whether, um, whether the fall is upwards or downwards. So if it's downwards, it's away from the state of some kind of perfection. Mm-hmm. Which is, I would say, the the majority view in, in in the history. But there are also views that were the fall is upwards. So it's the the first humans they were kind of innocent, like like children. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the kids are not innocent, but uh, like, yeah. let's pretend that they are. Yeah. But they, they, through the through the fall, they they rise to the higher state of consciousness, and, and they realize that they are guilty and responsible for what they do. Mm. So this could be a one way of getting out of this problem. Mm-hmm. So okay, so I want to make sure I'm following this. So if I take like an Augustinian kind of story of the fall and original and original sin and all that, I've got a nice like theodicy that I can tell. So if I get rid of the historical fall then I lose that theodicy. And so there's consequences, but that doesn't mean like I don't have a theodicy at all, but it does mean I have to think of, I have to find a different theodicy. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the first, uh, I mean, the, the patristic literature and also medieval and also reformation era literature, it's a typical question to ask at some point, where did evil come from? Mm-hmm. And it's also in the time of Augustine, it was also in relation to the Manichaeans. Mm-hmm. Because they, they they were saying more or less that okay the evil is part of the constitution of this world, 
but this was so obviously something that the Christians couldn't say. Yeah. So that, okay, so evil is some kind. Of, it, it lacks substance. It's it lacks being. It's a corruption uh, of being, and it's it's not part of the the or original constitution of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So yeah. So you, you need to get another story of how evil gets up in the world, and so we can see, like in Augustine's context, why he's making the moves he is. So today we'd have to look at our own context and go, do I need to make those same moves? Can I make yeah. other moves? Yeah, that seems fair. Okay, so that's, that's enough about the fall for now. So I want to get on to original sin. So, so in your chapter, you say that the doctrine of original sin can come in either a strong or like a moderate form. So tell me about the strong and moderate forms of original sin. And maybe perhaps you could also tell me a bit about which Christian denominations affirm which views on original sin. You start with the strong version, which is, uh, as I already mentioned, typically connected to St. Augustine. So on this view, humans are sinful because of this condition that we are born into, and we necessarily do actual or particular sins. But on top of that, we are also guilty of Adam's sin. Mm-hmm. So, so somehow, the, the, so on, on top of our individual guilt that we, we get when we do bad things, we also somehow partake or share Adam's sin, mm-hmm. and and this is the, the Augustinian nuclear option. So that even if you wouldn't do any actual sins and you would have zero individual guilt, you still have alien guilt, which is Adam's guilt. Right. Okay. So so, so this is the strong version, and the moderate version is born out of the sense of. Uh, let's say, unfairness. So because we, we naturally think that, well, I mean, we are only responsible of those things that we can control. And we couldn't control what Adam and Eve did. Right. So it's unfair to think that uh, we somehow share their guilt. Mm-hmm. So if I would accuse you of, of doing something something evil, which you didn't do, you would be uh, furious. Yeah. But in this Augustinian in story, uh, God seems to consider us responsible for the stuff that someone else did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in, in a moderate version, you still can say that, okay, we, we do bad stuff because we are born into this sinful human race, but we are only responsible for our own sins. Mm-hmm. So there is no alien guilt that's right. been imputed to us. It's It's only our our own own guilt that we do ourselves. Okay, so the so the strong version is I somehow have guilt that I inherited from Adam and Eve and on the on the moderate version I don't inherit any guilt. Yes. But I do so, still have some kind of fallen nature of some sort. Yes. So and, and even those modern theologians who are in favor of this moderate view they, they would still say something like this that uh, you you will st- 
still sin inevitable mm-hmm. uh, necessarily yeah so there is no possible world where someone or uh, or some version of me would live his life without committing actual sins mm-hmm. okay so, so that it, it's it's metaphysically necessary yeah still but it's still my own own guilt yeah uh, and it's uh, to make a very simplistic uh, distinction it's uh Those who are in favor of this Augustinian tradition, so Lutherans, Calvinists, uh, Catholic Church also to a certain extent favors the strong view, although in the new catechism of uh, Catholic Church, uh, they seem to be moving a little bit away from, from this strong version. Oh, okay. So in, in, in the wording is, is not as extreme as the Augustinian version would, would require. Armenians, uh, Wesleyans, Eastern Orthodox tradition typically favors the uh, the moderate view. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we've got a wide representation of both these views in a lot of different Christian denominations. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's just kind of focus on the strong uh, version of original sin for a moment here. So I've gotten this worry that it conflicts with a really intuitive understanding of moral responsibility, and you kind of briefly mentioned that earlier. So typically, I would say that a person is morally responsible for a state of affairs or an event if that person could have prevented that event from coming about. So if some event comes about that you could not have prevented, I wouldn't want to hold you morally responsible for it. So for example, Ali, like I don't want to hold you morally responsible for the Elizabeth earthquake because there was nothing that you could have done to prevent that. You want, I mean, because you weren't even born yet. So I mean, so it's really impossible for you to prevent the Elizabeth earthquake. So when I think about Adam and Eve. Like, I certainly could not have done anything to prevent Adam and Eve from sinning. And so it seems to me that no human being who was born with this corrupted nature, I mean, they couldn't have done anything to prevent Adam and Eve from sinning. So why are we guilty? I mean, that just doesn't seem right at all. So how might someone who is committed to a strong version of original sin respond to an objection like this? Yeah, so so there are certain ways of, of trying to answer answer this challenge. First of all, we can... We can think of situation when we can come under influence of of something merely by belonging to a to a certain group. So an an old example is that if a king goes to a war with the neighboring nation, mm-hmm. or all the uh, loyal subjects of the king are now enemies of of this nation, the other nation, and same applies to the citizens of of this other nation. So. Even though these peasants or uh, normal people wouldn't have a- anything to do with the war, right. because of this, uh, this view is called federalism. So this this kind of federal pact uh, that affects all the individuals. And in, in the article, I use an, as an example of uh, uh, what happened to U.S. Japanese population after Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. So. A huge number of Japanese, or uh, well, U.S. citizens who were of Japanese or, uh, origin, they were uh, sent to the camps or uh, imprisoned. Not because they were flying any of those planes, but because they were in this federal pact to to the emperor. Mm-hmm. So, okay, this is a story. What happens in our uh, fallen human communities? Right. 
and in a way it makes sense but but it doesn't doesn't do anything to alleviate the problems that have to do with fairness right so we would say that okay it wasn't fair to imprison this individual japanese person who didn't want to do any, anything to do with with the war mm-hmm. but in, in in order to get this uh strong version uh, flying you would need to uh build some kind of theory that allows you to explain how this federal pact is something stronger than just kind of contingent thing that well i just happened to be born in in japan right uh during a bad time of history mm-hmm. so that you you need you need something more you know that makes sense to me i find that intuitive because there is a sense in which i can say I don't. I don't like it, but I could. I could say like I can understand why you would want to be suspect of all these Japanese at that point in history, but that it really doesn't seem like that's just or fair at all. So it doesn't really seem like it gets out of subjection. Now, now in your chapter though, you mentioned two other ways for someone to defend a strong doctrine of original sin, and so you discuss a, a fission theory and then something called a conditional transworld depravity view. So tell me a bit about each of these views and maybe any problems they might face. Yeah, so so in, in order to get the strong view or, or or make it more coherent, you would I mean the, the these are two basic views. So so you either need to develop a theory of personhood or you have to accept a particular view of time. Mm-hmm. So with the fission theory you would say something like this, that actually there is only one human person or there's only one human nature. And, and this is something that uh, the Platonists, or, or at least some of the Platonists, uh, said. Um, and, and probably some church fathers adopted uh, views along these lines. But the fission theory or fission theories uh, would say something like this, that... Uh, Adam was a some kind of a super person, mm-hmm. and and after the wo- uh, fall, Adam was kind of a splintered or uh, broken into pieces, mm-hmm. which are out of which became all the individual persons. And this would allow you to say that okay, I was in Adam when Adam fell mm-hmm. because I was Adam, right? Yeah, uh, but that requires some metaphysical gymnastics it does so you you need to i mean you can get it off off the ground but you need to uh, adopt perhaps a bit non-standard view of what persons are with the transworld depravity view you could say something like this that okay because god has middle knowledge so god knows all possible worlds so god knows what i would have done if i would have been in adam's shoes Mm -hmm. And God knows that I would have done exactly the same thing what Adam did. And this way, again, I would say that uh, how I was in Adam or I was Adam. Mm-hmm. But again, this requires that uh, you need to have a good grounds for thinking that the middle knowledge or Molinism mm-hmm. is true. Yeah, well, yeah. So even if you have good grounds for for middle knowledge... You'd also have to have good grounds for this transworld depravity as well. Yeah. Yeah, so they got two steps it seems you'd have to jump through. So, okay, so, so in the first view, I have to adopt some kind of view of persons like perdurantism or some kind of doctrine of temporal parts or something of the sort where, where people can, like, splinter off and become other people. 
And then on the second view, I have to have something like Molinism and then something like transworld depravity. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one example that people use here is the Siamese twins. Mm-hmm. So that the, the, they have, I mean, let's say that there's, well, Siamese twins and who go through the surgery and they become two separate persons. Mm-hmm. But they share in the past a joint uh, physical points and also temporal points mm-hmm. uh, but in, in the case of adam we cannot share physical points in the past right but we would have to have temporal uh shared points yeah so they have to which be, yeah. again r- sounds a bit strange so it, it all again starts to stress our understanding of what persons are it really does like i mean i can say this much like the this view is that it requires like a like I said, like a, a doctrine of temporal parts or like four dimensionalism. It is very popular in certain analytic circles like in analytic metaphysics, but I don't think at all that this is what the average person thinks about, about uh, personal identity. And I just, I just think it's nuts. Um, I don't like it at all, but uh, even uh, some of its own defenders like Judith Thompson, uh, Thompson Jarvis has this very famous quote where she says that this view just is crazy, hmm. even though she's defending it. She's like, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's a crazy metaphysics. So, so yeah, it is a count. So at least some of its defenders admit, yeah, it's counterintuitive. So with that in mind, then let's look at the moderate doctrine of original sin. So just to remind everyone on this moderate account, like, like all of you have like some kind of like dirty, disgusting, corrupted human nature, but you don't have any of that pesky original guilt. So you're only guilty for the sins that you actually do commit. So does this view face any problems? Yeah. So, so the moderate view is born out of this problem that you have with the idea of uh, or, or the standard uh, intuition about responsibility but even the those who hold this moderate view they, they say that you will sin necessarily and and this creates a particular kind of problem so that uh, even if you don't share any alien guilt of any other person you are still born in into the condition that makes it inevitable that you will sin. Mm-hmm. So here you face so-called manipulation problems. So so let's imagine that an evil scientist uh, or an, an genetist creates in his laboratory uh, this human person. He does his science stuff to the to the fetus and, and the person developing, so that he becomes, let's say, an uh, a racist, mm-hmm. and and when this person, let's call him Jim, when when Jim is twenty, and he lives about his life, and he finds himself having these racist ideas all the time, mm-hmm. we could ask: Is Jim responsible for being a racist because he was, well, as we know, created by this evil scientist, mm-hmm. so that he there's. He's racist uh, necessarily. Yeah. And is this uh, different from the situation that all of us are? So that, uh, and and we could even say that if we would ask Jim, that say, hey, how do you like being a racist? And he would say, no, it's terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't like being racist, but I just can't help having these racist ideas. Yeah. But this is just how we humans are. So yeah. I mean, if, you, if you would ask a normal person on a good day, uh, so do you like 
cheating on your wife or uh, or, or doing these other bad things, most of the time people would probably say that, well, uh, I mean, if I could choose, this is not the life that mm-hmm. I would have chosen. Yeah. So, so in this moderate view, you have this uh, so-called manipulation problem. So now it, it, it's uh, very hard to pin down. So, so what constitutes uh, irresponsibility for a sin? Mm-hmm. There are ways of trying to get out of this problem. Saying something like this: that the, well, even though you were manipulated. You are still responsible if if what you did somehow reflects your deep self, mm-hmm. or if you recognize those acts as yours. So, in the case of Jim, you would say that uh, well, well, was it you that did this racist act or said this horrible thing? And Jim says that yeah, it was me, but I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. So, that, well, I mean, on a certain view, that just constitutes their responsibility. And that makes you guilty. Okay. Even though you, you don't like it. So it would be, we would be like a natural-born addicts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that if an addict doesn't necessarily like, like doing drugs, uh, or he would like to be sober, but he keeps on drinking or, or using drugs, mm-hmm. but he would like to. He'd prefer not to. Yeah. But, but when asked, so was it you that poured the glass of... Uh, whiskey mm-hmm. just a moment ago. Thought, yeah, well, it was me. So, yeah. well, on that view, you are responsible. But when you start to thin out uh, responsibility in this way, I mean, you start to run you know, all kinds of problems that they, they start to become less intuitive mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, okay. So I'm born just from the start, I'm just born with this nature where it is inevitable, just inevitable that I will mm-hmm. sin and I can't do anything about that. I don't like it, but no, I'm stuck with it. And is is that really fair? And and then I guess I have this other deeper worry that does that really get God off the hook? Because God knows in advance he's creating a world where that's going to happen. Uh, on At least on like most of your standard stories. Even on open theism, it seems like God would have a pretty good guess that that's going to happen. Yeah. A strong like like prediction that that's most likely what's going to happen. Yeah, so it's, so it seems like it's going to encounter a lot of problems. Yeah, exactly. So so it go the, the responsibility is sort of kicked down mm-hmm. uh, one level. Yeah. So that like in the case of Jim, it would be the the evil scientist who is responsible. Mm-hmm. In the case of humans, it starts to look a bit like that. that okay, God has something to do with it. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, you could try to create. A, a certain theory mm-hmm. which uh, almost inevitably would be a some form of mental gymnastics but then again i mean a lot of stuff that we do involves very yeah strange mental <laughs> gymnastics it does. uh so that doesn't necessarily count against those views yeah that's a good uh, point because the, the world is strange yeah um, so yeah, so even though you do have to do some complicated metaphysics, you have to do that in general with free will. Uh, so maybe at the end of the day, this isn't going to be a huge problem, but at least it's something that they have to consider. It's not like you just get all, you get out of all the problems if you make the, if you take the moderate view. Yeah, and 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 this relates on to of course on a debate on on free will, uh, on on predestination, mm-hmm. and and that's where the things got really 
could all get they get really complicated because uh, if you choose certain uh, views and free will, not all the options are on the cards for you when it comes to uh, to original sin. Right. So there are going to be consequences for things you want to think about elsewhere in your system of theology. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how it always goes. Um, yeah, so Ali, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. And there you have it, another episode of the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on analytic theology and science. <laughs>